All of this uh, is all against the backdrop of clearly what has become a more assertive China on the regional stage. Uh, the Chinese President Xi Jinping has also been very um, assertive at home as well. And um, if anything, Beijing is becoming more uncompromising, whether it be over the Uyghurs, the besieged Muslim community in northwest China, protests, of course, in Hong Kong, or in the South China Sea as its military power grows. Meanwhile, uh, Australian attitudes towards the People's Republic of China uh, we're becoming more anxious, there's no question. All the available opinion polling evidence indicates we are becoming more concerned about China's strategic and economic rise. Um, protests have broken out over the so-called Confucius Institutes on university campuses across the country, and there have been calls to nationalise the Darwin port leased to a Chinese company back in 2016. But the question here today is, can Australia really afford to be tougher with our largest trade partner. One in three of our export dollars are earned in Chinese markets and further economic opportunities beckon. Uh, I want to run a quote by you before we get things started. This is from Linda Jacobson. She's a former colleague of mine at the United States Study Centre. She has until recently run a think tank called the uh, China Matters. And get a load of this uh, quote from Linda. This was in the Financial Review uh, just a few um few weeks ago, as she makes the point that China is very important. And she says, whatever you think about China financially and economically, there is no market that will replace China for decades as far as Australia is concerned. This is Linda Jacobson in the Financial Review. We can quibble over how Australia got here, and we can all agree this kind of dependency is very unhealthy. The fact of the matter, Linda Jacobson says, is Australia we are hugely dependent on China for our prosperity. So, again, getting back to the question, can we really be tough on China? Or is the more appropriate question, can we afford not to get tougher with the People's Republic of China? Well, we have a terrific panel. I'm going to introduce each speaker one at a time. We have three speakers. After that, we'll have a discussion with my colleague, Sue Windybank. Our first speaker is Jason Yatsin Lee. He's chairman of Vantage Asia Holdings, and he's also on the advisory board, advisory board of the aforementioned uh, China Matters. Please welcome Jason Yatsin Lee. Thanks, Tom. Good evening, everyone. I wasn't quite expecting to be up on the rostrum. I thought we were going to be sitting down there. Um, so um, thank you very much for coming tonight. I mean, um, illustrious company. I, I'm primarily a business person, so I'm not a scholar, um, certainly not a, a beauty queen, um, and, and um, certainly not a, a studied academic expert on these uh, issues. So please take my commentary um, as thoughts or observations from uh, an interested observer who follows these issues and cares very much about um, these issues. Um, the other thing I should say is that the views I'm expressing tonight are my own. They don't necessarily uh, represent the views of the organisations that, um, that I'm part of. Um, the first thing I'd say is that this question, this relationship between the United States um, and, and China is the defining I think international relations uh, question um, of this of this century. Um, this is the big question. In the public debate, however, it's always been um, put uh, in a very confrontational way, and 
Australia's role in this has always again been put in a confrontation. Which side do we back? I mean, do we back the Americans? Do we back the Chinese? How do we choose uh, between those? And that's not an easy question, but I'd like to make it even more difficult uh, for us. Um, and that is to say, at the heart of this question is whether the United States and China can find a new equilibrium. Given what we know China is now, can the United States and China find a new strategic equilibrium, a new common purpose, um, if you will, such that it can accommodate a rising China and accommodate the aspirations of the United States to preserve peace and security um, in the world, um, to maintain some semblance of the rules-based international order, and to deal with some of the other big issues of our age, such as climate, such as energy, food, water, security. And then in that context, what role does Australia play in, and I wouldn't go so far as saying that we should act as a bridge, I think that's inherently dangerous, but as we think about our national interest and we think about the role that we play in this debate, how do we facilitate, steer, create a context for that new equilibrium to emerge? That's the first framing remark I'd make. The second remark is that, um, again, in the commentary, um, and certainly because of the rise of Xi Jinping and the nature of his leadership, it's very easy to think of China as one monolithic thing, like this big thing called China. There are actually lots of Chinas, lots of many different contradictory Chinas. Uh, I'm Chinese from a civilizational perspective, um, but I'm certainly not Chinese because I've got really nothing to do with the People's Republic of China, which is the Leninist uh, state. And there's two different Chinas there. There's also China, which is the mercantilist China, the China, the investor, the trader, the economic aspect. And then, and I guess this is another question for you, there is the China that is or can be, could be, the provider of international public goods. Is it conceivable to us here that China may in some way, in some form, be a provider of international public goods, be benevolent um, in a global context? The simplified way, um, very simplistic way um, of expressing this, I guess, is that there is a bad China, um, and we know a lot about the bad China as it's portrayed, um, a repressive authoritarian regime, the human rights um, uh, issues, um, the issues around the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. We know this. We know that is one part of China. But can we also accept that there is also a good China? You know, just as you know, there is a good United States and a bad United States, just as there is a good Tom Switzer and a, and a bad Tom Switzer. Um, and so, <laughs> or, all right, to be fair, there's a good Jason and a bad Jason, but there are always sides. There's always sides to any complex um, being. Um, so that's the second framing remark. My last framing remark goes to values, which is one of the topics uh, today. And here, um, the point I'd like to make is as we prosecute this debate, um, in Australia. Um, as a Chinese-Australian, it has been a um, disturbingly disenfranchising um, time. Normally very vocal uh, members of the Chinese community have been very silent during this debate, um, and I have felt it. And the reason why is because if one adopts 
any particular side too strongly. It's very easy to be fingered, to be painted as either pro-Beijing and in cahoots with the Communist Party or pro-America. And it's been a very disenfranchising um, um, time uh, for the Australian Chinese community. And there have been suggestions because of the United Front work uh, from the Chinese Communist Party that members of the Chinese community here might be tainted. They might be compromised. They may not be as trustworthy as Australians from other backgrounds. I raise this in the context of values because I think it's so important that as we defend Australian values, and we should and we must robustly defend our democracy and Australian values, but we need to be careful that as we defend those values, we don't do things that in fact undermine those very values. And I'm talking about the point of trust. And I pose a question to conclude, and that is, if we take an Australian Chinese citizen, is there an Australian citizen of Chinese background who may work for government or may work for a university, and we say that person, because of their background or because of their relationships in China, are not as trustworthy, we cannot trust them, as much. We will not trust them with our national secrets. We will not promote them beyond a certain level because there is a risk that they may be in cahoots with a foreign government. If we do that as a starting point, what does that say about us as an open society? What does that say about us as an open democratic uh, nation? So in the context of values, my argument is that first and foremost, if we believe that our liberal democracy is a superior system, we must be confident um, in our institutions and confident in our democracy and our responses to threats to that, uh, to that system. Thank you. Jason, thank you. Anastasia Lin is our scholar in residence at the Centre for Independent Studies for 2019. In 2015, she won the Miss Canada World beauty pageant. And um, in the context of winning that prestigious award, she spoke out against the Chinese regime and its human rights record. As a result, Beijing denied a visa to Anastasia to compete in China uh, for the Miss World contests of that year. Uh, Almost overnight, she became a big name in America. She was a front page story in the New York Times. Uh, The Washington Post published no less than four editorials praising Anastasia. And the Wall Street Journal published several laudatory op-ed pieces. My favourite came just after the 2016 presidential election. The headline was, A Beauty Queen Trump Should Meet. Ladies and gentlemen, Anastasia Lynn. Thank you very much, Tom. And it is my absolute privilege to be in Australia for a month to work with the CIS and a lot of very intelligent people here to on this issue that has been, uh, how to say, for me, it is a personal and it's about survival. The reason why my story got on the news is because my family, their survival was affected Now, if we want to talk about China, the good China and bad China, in my heart, there's only one China, and that is the good China. That is the China has 5,000 years of history and culture that embracing integrity, loyalty, trust, and civility. 
But the China we're dealing with today is a totalitarian regime that used every chance to undermine Western value. Now, when I say that, some people may be like, oh, are you uh, criticizing or accusing the outside Chinese community to be doing all those spying work for China? Well, my story is a very good example. How my father was threatened by the communist state police when I exercised my freedom of speech in Canada. Now, majority of the Chinese population that has family or business back in China do not feel free on this land. They don't feel free to speak up their very basic belief about Hong Kong, about Taiwan, about democracy. I cannot even participate in a beauty pageant and speak about very generalized human rights in a world peace kind of way without having my father threatened, his visa renewal denied, my grandparents, 70-year-old people, being harassed by the police. Now, for a Chinese overseas person, the Chinese eyes are everywhere. We constantly feel the cold iron arm of the Chinese Communist Party over us. And I don't accuse any other fellow Chinese in this community for being spy. I just worry how much their courage can sustain when the outside government does not even criticize China for, for putting millions of Uyghurs in camps, for killing their own citizens for profit. I think it is time. It is not a matter about choosing U.S. or China. It is about Australia's survival, its vital security interest when it is facing a totalitarian mercantilist state. Now, am I exaggerating China's intent here? Am I taking a too extreme view on the Chinese Communist Party? I know this since I was in kindergarten. My indoctrination has been Communist Party is closer to, to me than my own mother that for the flag and the communist ideology, it is worth it for me to give up my own life. They're still singing it at school today. Chinese Communist Party, they view the West, the Western liberalized state as enemy because they need to find legitimacy in their own rule to the Chinese party, uh, to the Chinese people. And that is why if they cannot deliver the utopia that they have promised to people, they have to find some kind of excuse. They blame the internal enemy that's working with the outside enemy in the West for constantly trying to sabotage their foundation. And we just have to see their intent in the way that they treat the West and within their domestic policy. I will give a very simple example. China in 2016 has banned foreign NGOs from working in China without submitting their annual report and their plan for the next year. And their excuse is that because NGOs, foreign NGOs are constantly trying to sabotage uh, Chinese communist rule. Well, why do they think that? Women's right, environmentalist NGOs, these ones sabotage Chinese regime? Or maybe it's because their own NGOs outside of China is doing exactly the same to our society. In 2016, China's schools have banned the talk of Western democratic value. The only one that's allowed is Marxist. Now, here in the West, they have their Confucius Institute in pretty much every university outside and Confucius classrooms scattered around, telling people how to sing songs that praise the great leader Mao that will lead us to glory. They plan in generations to have our kids sing those songs, be accustomed to their values so that they warm up to China. And the idea of communism of China is not so hostile to them. 
In China, only a handful of foreign movies are allowed every single year. Even if they're allowed, they're heavily censored, and they have to change. They have to cut their movie. And in Hollywood, Lions Work, Lionsgate, DreamWork, AMC. These movie studios and movie chains are all bought by China. That creates a huge incentive for Hollywood to self-censor, and it's more and more unlikely that we're going to see any movie that's produced critical of China. This war on the cultural front and on the economic warfare front, which Australia is feeling very heavy right now, on the educational front. And are we really、uh, still getting accused for having a cold war mentality? China's been having that mentality since Tiananmen Square. I want to leave it like that, and I'm really looking forward to engaging in discussion with the panelists. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Anna.、Um, Salvatore Babones、uh, is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Sydney.、Um, the Wall Street Journal rated his book, published last year, on Trump, populism, and the, and the elites. As one of the most important books, important political books of 2018. I mean, that is high praise. Wall Street Journal rating Salvatore Babone's book on Trump as one of the most important books of the year, and he's an adjunct scholar here at the Center for Independent Studies. We're pleased to say that we've just launched his first paper for CIS. It's called "The China Student Boom and the Risks It Poses to Australian Universities." Among other findings. He points out that、um, Australian universities are financially vulnerable because of a dependence on international students. He says that more than forty percent of all onshore international students, and almost certainly the majority of international student fee revenue, comes from China. So, to talk about this and to put this in the context of our discussion today, please welcome Salvatore. Actually, I, I was given a brief not to talk about the paper. So, but 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 I, I will uh, 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 I will say、uh, watch Anastasia's point about the movie studios. That's that's the big one.、Uh, self self censoring、uh, before they release movies.、Uh, look, is, is there anyone from Poland in the audience? No, I don't want to make any Polish jokes without. I want to know <laughs> Polish Australians maybe. All right. Well, you'll see why I ask.、Uh, look, Darwin to Dili. Is 500 miles, and so people say Australia is part of Asia, right? It's an Asian country. Sydney to Shanghai, though. I mean, who lives in Darwin? Does anyone here live in Darwin? No. I mean, Sydney to Shanghai, the two big business centers. That's 5,000 miles. If you view the world in economic geography terms and human geography terms, the population centers of Australia. Are five thousand miles from the population centers of China. That's almost exactly the same distance as Warsaw to Shanghai, or if you're Polish, Warsaw to Shanghai. In other words, if Australia is an Asian country, Poland is an Asian country, because it's just as close. In fact, Warsaw is closer to major Chinese population and industrial centers in Western China, like Xi'an and Chengdu. Warsaw is closer to Xi'an than Sydney is to Shanghai. San Francisco to Tokyo—I mean, the Pacific Ocean is vast. San Francisco to Tokyo is the same distance as Melbourne to Tokyo. So, America is an Asian country. 
Right. No, no, Australia is not an Asian country. Australia is actually much closer. The population centers of Australia are much closer to Antarctica than to the population centers of Asia. And you might as well say that Australia is an Antarctic country. And that's why the Australian Navy continues to be based uh, outside my window in Potts Point uh, to defend the penguins who are going to come anytime. Um, and that's why Australia is simply not integrated into Chinese economic networks. There are investors like Jason who go to China, but there are investors from Europe who go to China. I mean, China's number one export destination, contrary to Trumpian opinion, is not the United States, it's the European Union. Australia is so far away from China that it's completely unintegrated. There's nothing made in China out of Australian components. You know, Taiwan, they've got a China problem. South Korea has a huge China problem. Japan, they depend on China. Uh, Australia sells coal. Right? And that's very different. Australia is not integrated into production networks that threaten the Australian economy if something goes wrong. Even the United States is much more closely integrated into Chinese production networks, American companies that have global production networks that span all of East Asia, including final assembly in China, think of the iPhone. Those networks are very dense. You know, Silicon Valley is just as close to Shenzhen as you are, right? Except they've taken advantage of it uh, to actually integrate with the Chinese economy. And it's Silicon Valley and it's the American companies that are threatened if something goes wrong with global trade or with investment or with uh, the flows of goods and people around the Pacific. Australia exports iron, coal, sells degrees to China. But of those three, uh, iron and coal are fungible. They're sold into a global market. To say that Australia depends on China because it exports coal to China is to say that in 1973, Saudi Arabia was dependent on the United States because it sold oil to the United States. Well, if you want to find out who's dependent on whom, you guys create an OPEC of coal and place a coal embargo on China to raise the price. If anyone has the power in that relationship, it's Australia that has the power in that relationship. And if you don't believe me, well, then ask yourself about OPEC in Saudi Arabia. Who had the power in that relationship? Not the buyer the seller of oil, the strategic commodity. A fungible good means a good that, you know, if you push it down somewhere, pops up somewhere else. If, if China really does refuse to buy Australian coal, they've got to buy their coal somewhere. They buy Indonesian coal, and whoever was buying the Indonesian coal now has to buy the Australian coal. We've seen that with soybeans in the U.S. China refuses to buy U.S. soybeans, so U.S. soybeans go to Europe, while Brazilian soybeans, which used to go to America, now go to China. It's a global market for soybeans. The soybean wholesale price in the United States is identical to the soybean wholesale price in Brazil, despite the Chinese embargo on U.S. soybeans. Now, there's a global soybean glut. That price is low, but it's just as low for Brazilian producers as it is for American producers. And I guarantee you with coal, it's the same. The price for Australian coal adjusting for quality per therm is the same price as Indonesian coal or anyone else's coal, South African coal. Coal is coal doesn't make a difference. The only place where there is vulnerability in that relationship is tourism. Can't replace Chinese tourists with someone else if they don't come. And students at the universities. Now, with tourism, 
those are private operators who stand to lose. And you know, it would be a hit to the Australian economy if Chinese tourists disappear, but it wouldn't affect you know, the, the, the overall operation of the government and the system here. If Chinese students were to pull out of Australia, uh, that would put several strategic Australian institutions at risk, my own most of all, the uh, University of Sydney, which depends on Chinese students more than any other university in the country, uh, something like 25%. This, the numbers in the paper are a year old. The current numbers are 25% of total revenue at the University of Sydney. Not total tuition revenue, total revenue at the University of Sydney comes from Chinese students. That's the strategic threat. Um, coal, don't worry about it. The economy, don't worry about it. Chinese military, uh, don't worry about it. That, that's so far away from you. But the students are here, and that's a problem that Australia does have to tackle. Thanks. Now, now I'd like to call on the panel to come to the stage, Anastasia, Salvatore, Jason, and this discussion will be moderated by my colleague, Sue Windybank, who heads our China and Free Societies program. Over to you, Sue. And thank you, all, all three of you, for your uh, opening remarks. I wanted to pick up on something you said, uh, Jason, about Australia being a bridge between the United States and China and that being quite a dangerous concept. It reminded me of something Owen Harris once said. He was a senior fellow here back at CIS in the early 2000s and he said, bridges get walked over. So <laughs> I think you're right. And... And Anastasia, your point about China restricting NGOs, um, Western NGOs, because they consider them to be subversive to the government, um, but sending NGOs over to Western countries and doing the same thing, basically um, taking a leaf out of the Western playbook in a, in a way. And Salvatore, that point about um, coal exports, there was actually a study done recently by Victoria University that modelled a 25% hit on imports um, from China of Australian coal, and it worked out um, that the loss for every person was $24 per head, um, and that report goes on to explain why. Uh, but tonight I thought we'd roll back a bit to something Tom was saying at the beginning, which has been in the news so much over the past couple of months, which is the incredible scenes in Hong Kong, talking about good and bad China before, um, which have been truly inspiring and I think a reminder to us not to take our freedoms for granted. There are two harsh truths about Hong Kong, though, and this was pointed out recently by a former Singapore diplomat, Bilahari Corkison, who's quite renowned for being outspoken on China uh, and Chinese government influence operations in Singapore. And that is that at the end of the day, Hong Kong people are citizens of China. And when it comes to one country, two systems, the emphasis for Beijing is always on one country although we in the West and in Hong Kong might prefer two, two systems. And then, as he says, Beijing is probably prepared to wake, wake this up because where can Hong Kong go? Which foreign country will offer more than a token or, or rhetorical support to the demonstrators? And the answer to these questions, he said, is nowhere and no one. Harsh truth, but fair comment. What do you think? Salvatore, would you like to? You look at me. Yeah. Uh, a professor will always profess. Uh, <laughs> No, the Hong Kong situation is, is terribly tragic and there's very little anyone on the outside can do. That doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Uh, I think you know, we as individuals should be outspoken in support of Hong Kong people who are standing up in a very difficult situation, standing up for their historic freedoms. 
Uh, I think, and it's safe to say this in Australia, I think we can blame the British to some extent for not having established local democracy before pulling out of Hong Kong, which would have made the hands of the Hong Kong democracy activists much stronger uh, than they are now. Uh, but, you know, we should do what we can. I, I agree that we can't do very much, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. Would you agree, Anastasia, when it comes to the Uyghurs as well? In the end, what can what can Australia do by speaking out? And let's let's not forget that um, Xinjiang is a frontline state in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is Xi Jinping's flagship initiative. So the the, the prospect of international pressure on China um, to change things is probably quite low. But once again, would you agree that we have to speak out? Well, I think we need to realize our own leverage in this game. Mm. We actually have way more leverage than we know, and just no one have really ever exercised it mm. until we had a president in the United States called Trump. Um, but with first of all, with Hong Kong and same as Uyghur, and in the past with Falun Gong persecution, all these the West actually had a voice that they can exercise because Chinese people, like my father's generation, most of the thing they care about is not losing face. And they want to be accepted and at least feel like they're integrated to the outside community. So that's what happened with my campaign in organ harvesting. At the beginning, Chinese government completely ignored any outside voices talking about them killing their own citizens for their organs. But after uh, we ran the campaign for a few years, since 2016, now they actually have a voluntary, so-called voluntary nominal, voluntary organ donation system in China. They put up the website, the numbers are fake, but anyways, they do respond to outside pressure. And it's there have been cases that's proven that inside China, the political dissidents or the human rights lawyer, their situation in jail significantly improves when outside leaders talk about their case. So we need to exercise our voice. And in this point right now, Hong Kong's people's real security hope is actually on the outside world's attention. The more attention we put in it, the more we tell China this is of stake and we are all going to react to it, less likely they're going to do something that's too brazen. Can I jump in on Uyghur, or please? Oh, I'll give Jason a chance to respond. Uh, I just wanted to um, make a comment about Hong Kong. Um, I mean, I agree overall it's looking quite grim. Um, it's difficult to find a positive outcome. Um, for, for, for Hong Kong generally. But in trying to find a silver lining, I, I, I thought of this, and that is that um, if, given the nature of the protests and the scale of the protests that have been going on, if the Chinese government can bring itself to restrain, not to send in the tanks, not to send in the, the People's Military um, Police, that then begins to define the contours and the limits of this one country, two systems. Um, because there is nothing that freaks the Chinese government out more than this sort of political unrest. I think what is different here is that it has not penetrated and is not um, spreading in mainland China itself. It is, in, it is in Hong Kong. And so through the lens of its... Sort of China's interest and how the Communist Party looks at its interest, there isn't really a risk that it will begin to spread um, domestically. So given all of that, and given the nature of these protests, if still the Chinese government does not intervene, does not send in the tanks, then you begin to see we're, we're beginning to define the contours 
of how this might work. And then maybe, and it's good, you know, in the in, in people of Hong Kong standing up for their rights, what that then does is that it emphasizes Hong Kong is an open society and you can't lock it down because it's had the rule of law at the very least and it's had a democratic spirit for over a hundred years. And it's not the sort of place where you can lock down effectively like you could um, another place because it would just be a continuing uh, insurgency uh, there. So given those two things, and if one were to try to find a silver lining to what is going on, I'm thinking that might be it, that the battle lines are being, the bright lines are being drawn around how this might work sustainably going forward. As we say, regarding the, the repression of Uyghur uh, uh, national, uh, Uyghur, uh, people of Uyghur ethnicity in uh, western China and Xinjiang province, uh, uh, the dry port of Hurgos is in Xinjiang on the border between China and Kazakhstan. It's the key link in the Silk Road economic belt, the rail networks that connect China to Europe. It's the key link because it's the point where China's uh, standard gauge network intersects the former Soviet Union's wide gauge network and all the freight is transshipped in Hurgos. So it's a major transshipment port. The European Union has been remarkably silent on the Uyghur, uh, the atrocities against Uyghur Chinese. Uh, the European Union has not done anything to interrupt the uh, highly subsidized flow of goods, subsidized by China, flow of goods along these rail links. Uh, Europe should, uh, the European Union should, at a minimum, uh, put a you know go slow or a stoppage to these expanding rail links with China to signal that you know these rail links are going through a territory where a couple million people have been forced into re-education centers. Uh, you know, they should be taking this much more seriously. I'm not sure what Australia can do about Xinjiang, but the European Union sure could do something uh, and sure should be doing it. Who are the other Muslim countries? Well, you know, the other Muslim countries have a moral obligation, but they have a much, they're in a much worse position to do anything about it because they're depend more dependent on China. I, th I think also they, they, they don't want to speak up too much. Would this be the case? Because in many cases they are um, autocratic regimes themselves and, um, you know, don't want to tell the PRC to do what they would like to do to their own citizens at some point. Even Turkey tried. Mm. But, yeah. Look, maybe we should, do we have to look at this from the perspective of Chinese history um, and this, this, the Communist Party's obsession with stability and unity? I mean, there's some real foundation for why, um, when you think about the history, I mean, <clears throat> China's experienced the collapse of a traditional regime, warlordism, invasion, millions of people dead in famine, the, you know, the terror of the Cultural Revolution. We've had more recently huge socioeconomic changes. I think the biggest ever human migration from rural areas to, to human areas. So isn't this emphasis on stability and order understandable, given this history? What do you think, Jason? Uh, certainly. Uh, I mean, it's always helpful to put yourself in somebody else's shoes when you're trying to understand them. Um, and so going back to Andrew Hatsu's sort of comments, I think he had it half right mm. in his urging us to understand more about how the Chinese leadership thinks and what's really driving it. I think that's a very good thing for us to do. It's just that Andrew takes the next step and automatically jumps to the conclusion that China forevermore will be a, um, will be a negative and a... And a and a, um, a malevolent player um, internationally. But if we really understand what drives the Chinese leadership, Kevin Rudd has a very good sort of um, rubric around this. At the very pinnacle is, of course, the survival of the Communist Party, the survival of, of, of um, 
the, the Communist Party, the apex of Chinese politics. <laughs> Underneath that is uh, national integrity or national, the, the, the wholeness of the Chinese nation, thus pull, pulling in Xinjiang and Tibet and Taiwan, um, et cetera. And then underneath that are its territorial borders. So it's land borders, and there's 14 countries that border on China. At least three of them, maybe four if you believe uh, North Korea already has nuclear capability, three of them are nuclear powers. And then you have the maritime periphery, you know, the East and South China Sea, where China has been invaded at least a couple of times from Japan um, and earlier on by uh, a coalition of Western forces. So China has a history. Of being invaded through. It's not, it doesn't have the luxury of Australia being an island. Um, and so if one puts oneself in the shoes of the Chinese government from a defence perspective, one would say that it was completely reasonable that China would want to secure both its land and maritime uh, boundaries um, as much as it could. And then through that lens, one might also begin to understand why it takes uh, the, the uh, decisions and, and takes the actions one could make a, a similar case for, for Russia in that sense, um, by putting yourself in Russia's shoes and looking from the outside in. Let's, you, did right, you want I to say something, Salvatore? This is the fact that mm. Chinese policy has changed dramatically under Xi Jinping. Mm. Uh, change, changed from, a, uh, from promoting stability uh, to a policy of revisionism. And I think mm. the U.S. defense white paper under the Trump administration has correctly pegged that, that China has moved into becoming, from being a status quo power to being a revisionist power. It's been the aggressor in the South China Sea, militarizing it. It was the aggressor on the Doklam Plateau incident with India. Uh, it has been the aggressor, you could say, in this whole uh, Hong Kong issue that's risen. It's certainly been the aggressor in Taiwan relations. Uh, it's even been very aggressive vis-a-vis uh, -vis South Korea as well and, and embargoes on Korean companies. Uh, you know, This is not a country in, under Xi Jinping that is uh, seeking stability. It is a country that is destabilizing the region. Uh, and I think we should all be very frank about that. Also, within China, um, Xi has, has stepped up repression, censorship, surveillance, and a crackdown on religious movements in ways and at levels of intensity that people say they haven't seen since Tiananmen Square 30 years ago. The party is openly hostile to Western values, as you mentioned, Anastasia. Um, I'm sure a few of you here would have heard of Document 9, which is the 2013 communicate to the Communist Party listing nine Western values um, that were a threat to its survival. It talks constantly about struggle, struggle against hostile forces. Is the intensity of this pressure, internal pressure, actually sustainable? There was um, a recent op-ed by Ian Johnson who's written on religion in China. He recalled a lovely saying from, from traditional Chinese thought, which is then when things reach an extreme and they must go in the opposite direction. So do you think the pendulum is going to swing back anytime soon, Salvatore? Let me defer. I, I don't actually speak Chinese, so Chinese internal politics are much more opaque to me than they probably are to the <laughs> two of you. If, I, if I'd have a go at this, mm. I think what has caused the current nature of the, the, of the change and the, the increased control and authoritarianism in China is um, the Chinese are great students of history and and and. and um, international politics, and they will know that there comes a time in the economic development of a country where when, when a population gets sufficiently rich, um, when its wealth reaches a certain level, the forces of political liberalisation um, get stronger. And China is reaching that point. And so the Communist Party is going, all right, 
as we reach this point, the forces for political liberalization, democratization can get stronger and stronger. And that is why it is doubling down now um, on, um, on control. Now, whether that will then uh, revert, I think that is one of the really big questions that I hope that in a balanced debate, people can accept that it is possible. It is possible that at some point in the future that China may become a benevolent or at least not a malevolent um, actor both globally or internationally, and also to its own citizens. We do not know the trajectory, this particular trajectory of, of Chinese power out into the future. And I think given the history of uh, false predictions on, on, on China, that's certainly something to bear in mind. In fact, the American blogger and economist Tyler Cohen just said recently feels that there's now a group think that China will not liberalise, so we may yet be surprised. Yeah, and Richard McGregor has, has mm. published a really interesting sort of book about, you know, one perhaps uh, President Xi is not quite as um, all-controlling and all-powerful as one um, as one would think. But, I mean, it brings us back to Australia's uh, role in this. And, and part of the reason why I mentioned this, this really simplified rubric of good China, bad China, is I actually think we, we need to increase the strategic space for good China. We need to double down on good China. Because if we do that, then we're building the communication, the relationship and the trust infrastructure to deal robustly with bad China, if that, if that makes sense. So if we double down on, on the collaboration, if we double down on the relationship, if we double down on where there is collaborative space, and we deepen that trust and we deepen that relationship, that allows us to be firm when there are things that we don't agree on. But if we if we take only one view and we, we only see bad China, that burns the bridge. But don't, wouldn't you say that that has already been tried? The West has been held this idea that political liberalization will follow after economic prosperity for the last few decades. But it, it has not worked. While we're waiting for this miracle to happen, countless Chinese citizens continue to live under that regime and perish in prison. And Australia free trade agreement is a very good one. Australia agrees to treat Chinese companies the same as Australian companies, but China does not do the same. And they gain access to critical Australian assets. Yet you can't really get any sub anything substantial that's or critical in China. They have been using, after they joined the WTO, they have been breaking all their promises and pretty much targeting every loophole that a foreign country had to gain their own advantage. They have been taking advantage of our open society for 20 years already. That's why our trade deficit is so much. That's why we have cyber attack. That's why we have this and that. that. But if you follow that logic to its extreme, it only leads you to one place, and it's a pretty dark place. No, so, it leads you to the collapse of the Soviet Union, which was a very positive place. You can see it. <laughs> so you're saying, you're saying that being tough on China will lead to the collapse of China. I, I, I would like to see Europe and Australia and Canada uh, following the U.S. lead in pressuring China for reform. Uh, you know, as Mike Pompeo said, I think to Tom Switzer, you don't sell your soul for a pile of soybeans or for a lump of coal. And uh, But we're not business people. And uh, it's a different perspective. I don't, I don't think this yeah. is a business. I don't think this is a business perspective. I think this is a this is probably a realist perspective. 
I don't think this sort of pressure on China will one lead to the collapse of the um, of the Chinese regime. I think people have been predicting that for decades, um, and China is sufficiently wealthy; it's sufficiently self sufficient uh, now. And these are these are not business predictions; these are defat predictions. If you look at the if you look at the white paper, the foreign policy white paper, you look out eleven years to two thousand and thirty in PPP terms, the size of the Chinese economy will roughly be double the size. Um, of the American economy. Now that is um, that is a realist uh, trajectory, well, the, and so th- that's that's simply a false prediction. But we can well, get well, you take into that debate. Well, I mean, I, my, I, my own, you know, my own writing on China started with a paper in 2011 in Foreign Affairs magazine, uh, where I appeared alongside the uh, chief uh, finance. Forget who I appeared alongside. I'm forgetting his name. Uh, you know, and the argument among economists was that China was going to grow at a compound annual rate of you know eight to ten percent for the rest of eternity. I said, no, they're converging to middle income status. Uh, they're going to be like ten Mexicos stacked on top of each other. And in fact, by the end of the decade, I said China's growth would stop. And I think there's a lot of evidence that China's growth stopped in 2017. Uh, and all we've seen in China for the last two years has been reports of 6.5% annual growth when, in fact, there's 0 or 2% annual growth. I mean, cell phone sales are down. Auto sales are down. Exports are down. Uh, you know, stu- uh, students, graduates can't get jobs. That's not, I mean, that may be an economy growing 1%, but that's not an economy growing at 6.5%. Salvatore, I mean, what the point that you're getting to is that there is this narrative that China is an unstoppable juggernaut, right? Um, And you just mentioned slowing growth, but there are a whole other set of weaknesses and limitations and challenges that that China faces to kind of leapfrog into from middle income status. Um, The most important, as we all know, is the demographic challenge, getting old before we get rich. Um, but, you know, there's also a huge debt problem, um, there's very extreme pollution, there's corruption, etc. The point I'm making is, does it make sense to overplay China's strengths and downplay its weaknesses? Well, I don't want to monopolize this, please. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I, I think we have overplayed the strengths. And I think we need to realize, as China constantly says, at venues like the Paris Climate conference and like the G20, that it is a middle-income developing country that still needs special concessions, uh, well, I think we should take them at their word. It's a middle-income developing country with a GDP per capita, I'll use Poland again, roughly the same as Poland's, uh, with, I believe, at this point, a growth rate slower than Poland's, with worse economic policies, with worse governance, with worse corruption. And unless you think that you know Poland is going to be the next economic champion of the world, there's no reason to think that China will be, except the inertia that because it grew eight or ten percent in the past, that it will grow eight or ten eight or ten percent in the future. So I'm I'm a little bit logically confused here, in the sense that if we are now saying um, that China will implode of its own devices, uh, not implode, stagnate, will stagnate. Um, so then, are we saying we've got nothing to worry about because it will just stop? You know, and remain as it is, and the United States will remain the dominant power. Yeah. Is that is that your argument? Uh, very much. I'll, I'll point you to my, my twenty seventeen American Tiansha uh, book, uh, Chinese Money, American Power, and the End of History. Let me let me add to Jason's point, though, a concern 
on that, that that leading strategic analyst Hugh White has, which is if you're saying that China has all these weaknesses and it's going to stagnate, and he's like, we've been hearing this ever since reform and opening, but but nonetheless, um, let's take that on board. Are you merely wishing um, for China to solve your problem for you so that you don't have to think through um, the the choices and and decisions that Australia has to make regarding the United States and China? It's wishful thinking. I feel it's wishful thinking. I, I think, I mean, I'm no predictor of the actual growth rates, but I think this is a profound structural change um, in our geopolitical landscape, and it's not something that we can escape um, easily. So I think we need to be very, very deft at how we, how we manage that um, as Australia. And as I said before, I think we need to robustly understand what our national interest is and defend that. But at the same time, we cannot just have one malevolent view of one big monolithic China. Because if we do that, that only, that, that doesn't maximise our options and it only leads us to a very dark path. I'd like to encourage Australians like Jason and uh, Hugh White, and for that matter, Americans like John Mearsheimer, who was speaking uh, here last week, uh, to get specific about things. You know, is China a geopolitical challenger? But does that mean there's going to be war? Does that mean that the new three Chinese aircraft carriers are going to launch airstrikes on Darwin like the Japanese did in 1942? Uh, well, I don't think so. I don't think there's going to be any war. I think the only country that has to fear China at all militarily is perhaps Taiwan. I think that's very unlikely. The last uh, amphibious assault, successful amphibious assault in history was Inchon in 1952. Uh, and that was the U.S. Navy. Uh, you know, there's nowhere, there's no war in the future. There's no, you know, there's a push, but there's no shove in, in some sense. So I don't think Australians need to be worried about geopolitical conflict with China. First, China has to invade, you know, Southeast Asia and then leapfrog Indonesia before they even get here, right? Uh, when, we talk about, when we talk about geopolitical conflict, that sounds very tense and dramatic. But I always challenge uh, uh, military analysts, give me a scenario. Where are they going to attack? What, what are they going to do with these aircraft carriers? And so I would say, Sue, no, don't worry about it too much. Uh, well, be a, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, get specific. Tell them, give me a scenario. But the only thing I have to say, though, is that it's a kind of a different story for the Chinese communities here because they actually have their families. And, That's very uh, different. Yes, yes. businesses, but normal Australians, different. You mentioned Andrew Hasty before. Um, uh, just this week, uh, the former Australian ambassador to China, Jeff Raby, came out in a rather scathing op-ed um, about Hasty's point, which is basically that our Western assumptions about economic engagement would automatically lead to democracy in China is kind of the intellectual equivalent of the Marshall Line in World War II. And instead we face a very powerful authoritarian state, unreformed, Leninist political party, hostile to liberal values, but enmeshed in the global economy. Well, <clears throat> Raby says, look, just because engagement with China means it hasn't turned out to be a democracy doesn't automatically make it a threat, in capital letters. Um, he warns that security and defence agencies now, in his opinion, have far too much influence on China policy in Canberra and that Australia is too closely aligned with the United States, which has labelled China a strategic rival um, even though Australia does not consider China to be a strategic competitor. So do you think that the intelligence and, and defence agencies have taken over this debate? Um, Jeff actually implies that they have a vested interest 
in this, you know, to increase budgets and bureaucracy size and that they're just parroting the US line. Their comment? I don't know much about Australia's. I'm not an Australian, uh, if not the American. If you want to, uh, from, from, uh, from an American, look, the, the, from a military standpoint, Australia doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Uh, from a political standpoint, it matters. When Australians gave their life in Afghanistan, that was very important to American voters and to the American government and you know, to the American people. Uh, and they appreciated it. Uh, we appreciated it. Uh, you know, it, it's a political issue. The one Australian, is it a frigate, I think, that was sent to the Persian Gulf? You know, yeah, it's nice to have, but it's a political, it's a political statement. And that's what Australia can really do is, you know, stand by its friends and allies in a political way. The United States Navy is never going to be called on again to defend Australia. I mean, those, those days are past. So all this rhetoric about will America defend Australia in a crisis, defend Australia where? Right? Australia doesn't need America to defend it. But Australia does benefit from being part of a larger community of nations that broadly agree on how the world should be run. And I think Australia has historically done a very good job of being a part of that community. Thanks, Salvatore. But let me, I think we're about to open up to questions from the audience. So I just want to ask one more question concerning the South China Sea. And it kind of goes to your point, bad China, good China seeing things from China's perspective. And John Mearsheimer's um, very clear-eyed, realist view of the US-Sino uh, competition. Um, we all know Beijing has built and militarised islands in the South China Sea. It said it would, wouldn't militarise them, but went ahead and did it. It ignored the Hague's 2016 legal ruling. It's bullied smaller states. Some say that Chinese fishing fleets are harassing others' vessels and acting like a kind of unofficial maritime militia. But let me put this to you. Um, the maritime policy analyst uh, Mark Valencia, writing recently in the South China Morning Post, said, one man's militarisation is another man's self-defence. Okay, now the PRC has deployed jet fighters and missiles on the South China Sea islands it occupies, and now the US is seeking to deploy intermediate-range missiles in the region if it can find some agreeable Posts. Now, both sides say they're acting defensively, but isn't this just a classic example of the security dilemma that John Mearsheimer talks about, where one person sees it as defensive and the other side sees it as offensive, what he called the tragedy of great power politics? Yeah, I think this reflects what I was saying mm. um, earlier on. And again, I think putting, putting different sets of shoes on, I think we ask ourselves, how would the United States feel if, it, if the shoe was on the other foot? In other words, if China had an ability to project military power close to its borders, it had no forward projecting or even defensive military bases um, around its sort of maritime periphery, what would the United States do? And I think a large part of this is this is what great powers do. This, this, is, this, is, great, this, this is great power uh, behaviour. Now, to Australia, I think this thing about, you know, will the United States come and defend Australia? I think that's a really interesting uh, question now. Because, and th this is Hugh White's, this is what I find really interesting about Hugh White's new thesis, and that is if the United States does not come and defend Australia, um, then we need to defend ourselves. And so there's some really interesting questions here about whether we have the capability, the budget, about 2% of GDP at the moment. Are we, are we devoting enough of our budget in the right way so that we can stand on our own two feet? Um, and I think there's some really interesting uh, questions. Uh, Let's... Uh... Hold it there and I think open up to the audience. Yeah, I thought there would be a few questions. I think you shot up first. If you would 
like to bring a mic forward? Hi. Um, so uh, when the Cold War first began, the Soviet Union managed to industrialize quicker than the USA. They got their man in space first. Everything seemed to be going pretty great. Uh, but now, until it didn't, until it turned out to be a bit of a Ponzi scheme. Uh, so, you know, that, it seems to me like there's some signs of this in China already. You know, they've done really well, but, you know, they sell their own coal to their manufacturing businesses at a loss so they can subsidize manufacturing. They lend uh, loans to businesses at artificially low interest rates. Their domestic debt levels are insane. They have ghost cities that no one's actually living in. Um, so I'm starting to see all these signs, plus the one-child policy. They're going to be recovering from that for a very long time. So the question is, I mean, can the honeymoon last forever? I mean, you know, let's forget about the idea of them collapsing completely, because I think that's a bit of a question mark right now. But surely this can only last, I mean, this can barely, I mean, how long do you guys reckon this can actually keep going on until they have to change the model completely? And can they change the model um, without threatening the Chinese Communist Party control and leading to surveillance? Uh, well, I will just speak it from a Chinese history standpoint. We have this dynastic, China goes, went through different dynasties. And, no, and also in history, no one-party authoritarian state can remain forever. So it's almost, it's like their destiny. We eventually get there, but how we get there is the question. I guess I just didn't say <laughs> Go ahead. We're trying to protect like the future for, again, aren't we? For 40 years, Westerners <laughs> have been making easy money in China. Uh, I mean, I know I don't want to say anyone's you know, not good at what they do, but, but you know, Westerners are making easy money in China. And they should be asking themselves, why was it so easy to make money in China? And the answer is the incredible inefficiencies that you're pointing out. When there are inefficiencies, you can arbitrage them away. You know, and that's, that should be a signal. Well, now it's getting very hard to make any more money in China, and we'll see where that goes. You had a question over here, the gentleman right over there. I, I wonder if we shouldn't be looking to ourselves rather mm. more than looking to China in terms of our attitudes to China over time. Haven't we been involved really in the business of self-delusion for a long time about the nature of the Chinese regime? Because we're making so much money out of it, people like Kerry Stokes and Andrew Forrest and so on stand up and we say we shouldn't criticise China we're threatening our own viability and so on. But surely having an authoritarian dictatorial regime, for which, as we've heard, our, our views, our democracy threatens the very nature of that regime, shouldn't we just simply be a lot more honest about the nature of the regime we're dealing with while trading with it, albeit, but at the same time be much more transparent about who it is we're trading with? I think it's a really interesting, it's a really interesting question uh, there in, in, in the context of, current politics um, in Australia. And I think a question to ask ourselves is, are we prepared as a country to take a significant hit um, in our standard of living in order to defend a particular view of our values? Right? And let's overlay that to what happened in the last election, right, where uh, we voted out a proper, we didn't accept electorally a proposition uh, to uh, to uh, reduce the by half the, the negative uh, sort of capital gains tax discount, all of those policies uh, that the Labor Party took to the government, we rejected those. But will we accept a significant hit to our standard of living? Stick up for our uh, national values. More than the twenty-four dollars per person that yeah, I mentioned but before. But that doesn't stop us from recognizing what Chinese Communist Party is and all the threat that it poses. I, 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 after I, I think we know to... what it is. The question is, oh, I... what do we do with it? 
Yeah, right? the thing I is, after I came to Australia, I feel like there is a willful blindness to turn to to look at the same facts and reach a completely different conclusion. And that was something that was quite astonishing, as if um, certain people or the intellectual elite refuse to see China for what it really is. This was an issue I had with Andrew Hatsi. I think his his comments. Mm. I'm just not sure that they added all that much in the sense that. Can somebody point out to me in the last 12 months a single positive media article about China? It has been across not just the Murdoch press but the Fairprack press. It has, on a daily basis, been very negative commentary on China. And if the general Australian population has not begun to take that in, and I think you see that in the results of the Lowy poll in terms of Chinese Australian attitudes to China, I think we know what China is now. The question is, what now? Now that we know the nature of what China is, how do we work with that? What do we do with that? That's the, I think that's the, that's the tricky question. Up the back, and that lady in front of you. Sorry, I've, I've missed you. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a uh, Chinese, and uh, I have been living in Australia for 17 years. So I think I should uh, speak on behalf of the um, Chinese um, community here. Although I can't solely represent him, but probably I think I should say what I see as overseas Chinese living in Australia for so long. So I think my view is, um, like I have been seeing the rapid development in China for the past twenty years, and I'm always having the view that once China has developed and when its integration with the Western community, that it will start to embrace the value of democracy and human rights in China. But sadly, I should admit, after 20 years or after 30 years, I was completely disappointed what the past, the Chinese Communist Party has taken. Instead of taking to... Do you have a question? The, yes. Yeah. The, the, the question is, I think is um, for, for the Jason, uh, I think what you are talking about is the trade, trade uh, with the Chinese. Yes, the economy is going to have a hit if China is buying less from China. But should we have not only uh, thinking about the war of the uh, of, uh, only the trade with China, whether we should looking at the next generation of the Australia people, see whether our democracy, our next generation, will be affected by how China's infiltration with the, uh, uh, the the school, the university. If you can remember, last uh, weekend they have demonstrate and have a crash of the uh, pre Beijing and the pre democracy in uh, the CBD. And they have chanted the national slogan. Okay, Salvatore, would you, would you, or Anna, would you like to to talk about those clashes in the in the streets or on the campus between pro and? I I, I just like to give a, a message of hope. There, there's no democracy in China, but there is rapidly rising individualism in China, and individualism is ultimately the foundation of both freedom and democracy. As people start to value themselves more than they listen to their government, I mean, nobody look at all the Xi Jinping cartoons. Uh, making fun of him using Winnie the Pooh. You know, that would never have happened in China 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And I think that's cause for hope. Okay, well, one more question right up the back there. Uh, thank you. Look, uh, no, I know um, Poland was mentioned before. Yeah. And also, <laughs> there you go. I'm not Polish. Though. Neither am I. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the question about uh, we know what China is. Well, if you remember Pope John Paul II, the Polish Pope, he knew what communism was, and he said it was an anti-humanity force. Now, that's the exact nature of what is occurring in China. But it dresses nicely in suits when ministers come here. 
They conduct themselves through all the niceties of Western civilization. But the essence of what the Communist Party is is an anti-humanity force. And you'll see that in the suffering of the Uyghurs, Falun Gong practitioners. And our job is to stand up. And I have a question. The question is to Salvatore. You are now exposing inconvenient truths, which many human rights activists have been exposing the organ harvesting in China. These are inconvenient truths for us to deal with. But you're also exposing inconvenient truths. And have you had any blowback or interference from your work at the moment? Now, so you're talking about the China student paper. Uh, I've actually been uh, criticized but supported by my vice chancellor, Michael Spence. Uh, I certainly don't have to fear for my job, as many people have, uh, have expressed some concern. Uh, we have a very robust tradition of free speech at the University of Sydney, and I feel like I can be absolutely confident. If someone's got one very quick question, we can squeeze it in one minute. I'm doing a Tony Jones on Q&A. Um, yeah, sorry, I overlooked you before. Sorry, I'm not discriminating against that side. <laughs> Hi, thank you for the riveting debate. Very good. Um, I'm Melanie from the Epoch Times. I just have a question related to um, what the lady was saying before. So we've seen a lot of student, Chinese students come to Australia to study, um, mainly directed at Salvador. Um, and there is great benefit of them coming over here and um, ex us exchanging mutually our culture and our knowledge. Um, there's lots of value that we all see in that. And we, we want to have that keep going. Um, but we do see the risk as well with the different cultures uh, aspects that they're bringing and what we've seen on the streets with the clashes between the students. So I'm wondering, um, do you see a way to protect the value in that relationship and um, prevent a backlash from the Australian community? Perhaps that Australia needs to look at um, cancelling the student visas of the ones who are acting aggressively or violently to protect the Just ones quick, who are actually doing answer. the right thing? Yeah, I've actually been very supportive. You may be surprised to hear, very supportive of my Chinese students, many of whom are among the nationalist protesters, because I think that even though I disagree with them, they are learning values and learning how to do democracy in a way that they're going to bring back to China. So while I don't sympathize with their viewpoint, uh, I do think they're learning valuable lessons. One more final comment. Yeah. I was just going to say, it was a very good point. I think part of the value of having Chinese students here is not just what they learn in the Masters of Professional Accounting, but they learn about an open society. Um, and that is, that is something that we can impart to them, which then would, they will then bring home to China and you know, hopefully do something meaningful uh, with that. That's the first point. The second point about, their, about Chinese students generally at universities, um, I think the reality goes to that point that the gentleman and I debated earlier on, and that is that because of the nature of Commonwealth government funding to the universities uh, now, there are courses, particularly those with laboratories, medicine, dentistry, vet science, agriculture, etc., that are loss-making courses. So the amounts that the students pay, combined with the amount that the government pays universities to run them, does not cover the cost of running those courses. So they are loss-making courses. Because of the caps on government funding, that has driven the universities to international students to plug that revenue gap. The reason for that is because the bulk of the Australian universities are comprehensive public institutions. In other words, universities here, such as the University of Sydney, University of New South Wales, have a public duty to provide as broad a range of courses for the public good. Now, the universities could cut courses. We cut loss-making courses, cut medicine, cut vet science, and we, we maybe wouldn't need to have so many international students. But the universities feel that they can't do that. 
because the comprehensive university, public universities, and it's part of their social responsibility to provide those courses on an ongoing basis. Thank Jason, you. Jason, thank you very much, and thank you, Sue and Anna and Salvatore. Please thank them. Great. Now, going to say, Jason, although Jason has to leave soon, uh, I should stress that uh, uh, Salvatore and Anna and indeed Sue will still be here for the next half hour to mingle and drink with you. So if you have any questions, please feel free to ask them. Thanks again. As I said in the outset, uh, we are primarily focused on domestic public policy here at CIS, uh, productivity, uh, education, cultural freedom and Indigenous affairs. But as I also mentioned, we're very much engaged in the uh, Australia-China debate. And given how intense the strategic and economic competition is between Washington and Beijing, it's so important for us more than ever to be part of that debate. And I think we were really well served here this evening with a wonderful panel discussion. Uh, Jason reminded me a lot of something that Malcolm Fraser often told me, our former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, that Sometimes in the uh, West, particularly in America and indeed in Australia, we often fail to put ourselves in our opponent's shoes and try to look at the world from their vantage point. And uh, sometimes these countries do have legitimate security interests. Uh, and I think Jason pointed that out very nicely. At the same time, Anastasia did remind us very clearly that uh, particularly in the Xi Jinping era, China has become more repressive at home and more assertive abroad. And Salvatore reminded us uh, or reassured us that intellectual freedom is alive and well at the University of Sydney, <laughs> which is good to know. Long may it continue, Salvatore. Thank you so much. A great discussion. And finally, just two things. The next major event we're hosting is on Tuesday week. It's September 3. It's our annual keynote, John Benython Lecture. Our keynote speaker is Lionel Shriver. Uh, she's a distinguished novelist and a leading critic of identity politics. She writes a regular column for the UK Spectator. She'll be our keynote address a keynote speaker at our annual John Benython Lecture. That's September 3. Details are available on, on our website. And then on September 9, here, it's a Monday afternoon, a lunch event with the distinguished British journalist and historian Simon Heffer on the politics of Brexit. Brexit, he supports. Boris, he detests. You don't want to miss that. That's here on September 9. We hope to see you then. Thank you so much.